This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of I Know That Face, the only podcast which honors the often underappreciated by the masses work of character actors. I'm Stephen Portsale. My name is Andrew Carroll. We're returning from our Christmas break and today we are discussing the career of French star but US character actor Vincent Cassel. Andrew, run down his history. Vincent Cassel was born in Paris, France in 1966. His first film role was in Mathieu Cassavitz's Métisse, also known as Café au lait. But it was Kasowitz's 1995 film La Haine that saw him explode into the mainstream. Following his two César nominations for La Haine, he starred in a string of French-language films, including the BAFTA-winning L'Appartement, Doberman, and The Brotherhood of the Wolf, all of which co-starred his future wife, Monica Bellucci. Uh, one of his first English roles was as Monsieur Hood in Shrek, which was followed up by the controversial French film Irreversible in 2002. Over the last two decades, Cassell has acted in both the French and English language with a smattering of Russian and Eastern promises. In the English-speaking world, he is best known as François Toulot in Oceans 12 and 13, Thomas Leroy in Darren Aronofsky's Black Swan, and as Angerard Serac in HBO's Westworld. In 2022, he will play Julius Caesar in Asterix and Obelix, The Middle Kingdom. He speaks French, English, Italian, Portuguese and conversational Russian. He was married to fellow actor Monica Bellucci for 14 years and in possibly the most French move ever is now married to model Tina Kunaki, who is 30 years his junior. He is a practitioner of the Brazilian martial arts Capoeira and lived in Brazil for five years. Yeah, uh, Vincent Cassel was your pick and is one I'm very happy about because I remember when I was in college and was first getting big into contemporary European cinema mm. Cassell was an actor probably because I saw him pop up in English language movies like Black Swan or Danny Boyle's really underrated movie Trance or Eastern Promises, where if I saw that he was in a French film, I thought to myself, oh, it must be good because he's in it. Like yeah, he kind yeah. of became a, um, a stamp of quality. Yeah. So I've actually seen a surprising amount of his French work on top of the more well-known ones like Lahaine and Irreversible that we'll talk about, you know, in depth. I've seen Crimson Rivers, Read My Lips, Shaitan, Mezrine, The Monk, Monwa, and they're all pretty good to great. And uh, I think what's cool about Cassell is that he has the charisma to be an A-lister and is this handsome, suave dude. Like, he's a massive star in France, both in terms of acting. Like, he played Jacques Mizrine in a two-part movie who was, like, the French's Robin Hood-type criminal in the same way that Dillinger was for America. Mm. And also in terms of celebrity, because, like, Cassell and Monica Bellucci, when they married, were, like, Brad and Angelina, you know, and now they're divorced, like yeah. Brad and Angelina. Yeah. So it almost feels like we're breaking our own rules but I do think there's something about his face with its lines and stubble that gives him a lot of character. And I think together with his sort of tall hunch frame and weirdly mm. flexible body, like mm. he dances all the time in like he dances in Irreversible, in La Haine. He does the laser dance in Ocean's 12, yeah. you, know, you know, when he's doing the heist. Like he can kind of play anything with those features. And I think because of those qualities he can bring to characters, I think he's, he particularly excels at playing both protagonists that aren't just clean-cut heroes as well as he can play anti-heroes as mm, well. Yeah. And I think because French cinema... And sometimes pure villains. And pure yeah. villains. And I think because French cinema is a lot less precious about their stars and their image and make more complex movies than Hollywood movies, he can be a star there even if he takes on a lot more challenging roles that I I don't think Chris Pratt would take in America. That's true, yeah. When has when Chris Pratt ever showed Hog on camera? <laughs> Absolutely yeah. none. Yeah. And we've all been crying out for it. Maybe in the Mario animated <laughs> I have a quote from Cassell where he kind of talks about this, where he says, people pretend to be nice, people pretend to be smooth and polite and everything, but this is only an appearance because the way we're built as human beings is only in paradox and contradictions. So when I read so-called baddies, I think they're more human than heroes most of the time. And uh, I think as well as that, we've talked about this on the show before, but like most international stars, when they show up in American movies, they are sort of used like character actors. Like yeah. In all the US movies I've mentioned, he's playing character actor roles. And the most recent thing I saw him in was the third season of Westworld, as you mentioned, who uh, sort of showed up as the heavy for the season. Yeah. And it was a real character actor part. Like even if that season got mixed reviews, everyone was unanimously like he was the best thing in it, managing to be very fun, chewing the scenery, but also threatening as this tech genius who created this terrifying AI system. So I'm clearly a big fan of him. Yeah. Uh, what made you want to pick? He just has such presence 
I never knew he was such a big part of my childhood until I realised he voices Robin Hood in Shrek I steal one. from the rich and give to the pretty. <laughs> <laughs> oh, merry a, man. <laughs> I take a little for myself, but I'm not greedy. Yeah. yeah. And I remember seeing him in um, the fourth Born movie, which, yeah. despite the fact that it has its, its plot is very thin on the ground, I remember him being such a presence in it. Like, mm. he's so... He's like a... It's like someone has released like a wolf from its cage and it's he's just hunting down Jason Bourne. He's like I don't know, he's like Michael Myers in that movie or something. Yeah. That movie has like a terrible screenplay but it's actually really well directed. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. The direction really like blew any kind of screenwriting uh, flaws that I might have taken up with the movie out of the water. Yeah. Yeah. So we get into his big break. We I think we both watch Lahaine, right? Yeah. Do you want to sure. take the plot? Sure. Vincent Cassel plays Vince, a French youth living in the ghetto, or Le Banlou, outside Paris. He spends his days causing trouble and believing he's a bigger gangster and man than he actually is. After his friend Abdel is put in a coma by police, Vince and his friend Hubert, uh, Hubert Conde, and Saeed, Saeed Tachmoui, uh, wander the streets in possession of a policeman's gun lost in the previous night's riots. Should Abdel die, Vince plans on taking revenge. Yeah. What did you think of Lahaine? Had you seen it before? I'd never seen it before, no. A, lo- all of my, a lot of my friends had seen it in school. As it's part a of big, like, big movie for teenagers. I yeah, for yeah. Like, I think they saw it in like history class or maybe French, a French class or whatever, but it, was, it just completely passed me by. And um, I loved it. I really enjoyed it. I thought, because what a lot of people said to me about it was that it, uh, the ending is very depressing and the ending is kind of depressing. But I didn't expect it to have such kind of energy and life to it in the preceding 97 minutes yeah, yeah. because it's very like obviously the subject matter is so important and so timely today yeah. but it also has sort of train spotting energy in that like it Absolutely. is 24 yeah. hours in the life of these three teenagers who sort of like dabble in petty crime yeah you know yeah i completely agree and it's also got like nouvelle vague energy where like it's it's very socially realist in mm. certain respects but there are these little like, like dream sequences or little yeah. like strange direction that makes you kind of aware that you're watching a movie like the whole blend is very unusual yeah yeah like the, the bit where he's uh vins is introduced but he's dancing to like jewish folk music in his dreams yeah, and yeah. It, it cuts to him asleep and he's like <clears throat> and there's a big string of drool going down his mouth <laughs> yeah or just the conversation they have well not a conversation the monologue the kind of russian french guy gives or maybe he was a russian prisoner of war or whatever yeah in the bathroom bathroom yeah Yeah. and he's like oh my friend froze to death in the siberian wastes and they're like and he leaves and what the fuck was that about yeah and and the guy um i think it's vincent Landon who um when they're breaking into the car yeah 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 yeah, yeah, in a terrible wig yeah yeah Yeah. looks Um, like david a french david thulis Yeah, I, I feel like the moment Vincent Cassell's character Vince is seen delivering the, the taxi driver-esque monologue, you know, like, you're talking to me yeah, in the yeah. mirror, that must have been like, oh, yeah, a star is born. Yeah. Because, um, like, I can imagine people watching being like, who is this guy? Because that scene comes very early in the movie. And it's just him on his own riffing on one of the most famous scenes ever, but putting his own spin on it and with the way his body moves, the weird facial expressions he's pulling, the energetic delivery of the dialogue and the flourishes he's adding the whoa 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 it feels iconic in its own right and um, I think Cassell really carries that energy and vitality throughout the movie which is important as his character Vins is the the main plot driver in this movie that's like just 24 hours in his friend's life like he's found this gun a cop lost in the riot where you know another of his friends was severely beaten and he's vowed that if a friend if, if his friend dies he will kill a cop with it so it's a bit like Chekhov's gun you know you, you know the gun is going to be used at some point mm-hmm. and wondering how and when is where the tension comes from and the, the three keep getting into situations where it could go yeah, off yeah. as well you know yeah. but I think what's complex about the character of Inns is that even though he does the Travis Bickle monologue in the mirror like there's a bit of an artifice to it like he's yeah, not absolutely. Travis Bickle yeah, yeah. you know like I think it is scary that he's carrying a gun the whole movie and is always waving around yeah, yeah. but I, I do think you quickly get a sense that he's all talk that the hard man badass image he's he, you know he's working hard to project a performance because, and I, I think that's a combination of being rightfully angry mm. about you know what happened to his friends before the events of the movie and wishing he could do something about it and also dissatisfaction with the way he and his family and friends have to live in this poor suburb. But I think it's also combined with this youthful immaturity and him also kind of wanting to gain the respect of the other young men from immigrant families in his neighborhood who I get the vibe he thinks don't take him seriously because he's white. Mm. You know, he's from a Jewish family as opposed to a lot of the other people who live there. 
Yeah, I think uh, like all Vince wants to do is is to do something that will make him a legend. Yeah, and it's kind of like emblematic of like what a lot of people say is like, oh, these young men, these young men who got the wrong message from Taxi Driver. Um, and I don't think it's ne- it's necessarily the wrong message because I think every film is kind of subject to the circumstances in which its audiences, be they one person or a packed theater, are raised in. Um, so a man of Vince's education and social standing might think that going to jail a hero is a lot better than going to jail a villain. But killing a cop, regardless of whether you regard them as evil, is much more different from killing Harvey Keitel dressed as a pimp. Yeah, I get yeah, it. If mean. you get me, yeah. There's a bit where he's the group of friends separate. And Vince runs off saying, I know who I am and where I'm from. And Hubert replies, then, <laughs> then go back there and shut the fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. The, the bit where like he pulls the gun on the cop when the trio are being chased and he, he pauses for a second and Hubert steps in and punches the cop and then they, they run away. And you realize like he couldn't do it. Yeah, yeah. And, but in the next scene, they're on the train to Paris and he's doing the... He's got like Jay from the Inbetweeners. He's talking like a big game like, oh, if Hubert hadn't been there, I'd have shot him. And he's like, pow, pow. Yeah. Like, he's doing the noises <laughs> and stuff. And then, you know, later on when he has the chance to kill one of the skinheads who attacked the trio, like, again, he can't do it. And he actually retches mm. after he lets the skinhead go at the thought that he yeah. almost shot him. And, um, played by Matthew Kasovitz played by Matthew yeah. Kasovitz himself and it's I think that moment you feel that Vince finally understood what Hubert had been saying you know throughout the movie Latin tear Latin you know like hatred breeds hatred yeah. you know and I, I just think it's impressive in terms of Kasovitz's writing but also the way Cassell plays the part that you can find Vince compelling to watch not because we think he's a badass but actually because of how phony the act is Yeah, and like he's engaging because we understand that he's just a young misguided kid whose actions at least partly come from a good place but could have devastating consequences yeah you know I actually my takeaway from the movie is less as you mentioned kind of like there's a lot of like bravado-y scenes but I I actually and you know obviously the movie is very tackling all these like important things about like police racism and police brutality but um I really get a lot out of like just the gang being dumb teenagers you know like people in their early 20s you know like the bit where Vince cuts Saeed's hair and makes a hames of it (laughs) where you know the bit where he's like show me show me in the mirror and he keeps like like putting up the mirror for a second (laughs) (laughs) or um, the the bit where they go into the art gallery to get the free drink and they start acting really rowdy all that stuff is really well observed and fun to watch on top of the larger societal points that the movie's making Mm. and uh, I think Lehane showed that Cassell really early could play someone who is seemingly very uningratiating like you know like these unlikable characters and make you very interested in them and I think it's something he's done throughout his career but um, I just really re-watching Lehane I couldn't get over how relevant it was today in that like all the topics that the movie is discussing seem like they're even more discussed now yeah and then also how it's kind of inspired other movies whereas there's that scene in the hain where the two cops who are um they're violently interrogating torturing um saeed and hoover yeah. and they're kind of showing a younger cop this is how you do it without pushing it too far yeah, i'm saying in air yeah, quotes yeah. and that that scene is basically the movie les miserables not the victor hugo book but the movie that came out two years ago like yeah. that that kind of has that energy for the whole movie and like those two will be like a great double build together yeah yeah um do you want to talk about uh, Brotherhood of the Wolf? Yeah, sure. Did you watch this one? I'd seen it already. I okay, didn't really watch yeah. it. Those. Yeah. So in Brotherhood of the Wolf, Vincent Cassell plays, oh boy, Jean-Francois de Moragius. Sorry, Charlene. The crippled son of a local count in the province of uh, Yvadon. Uh, when the knight Gregor de Franzoc, uh, played by Samuel Le Bahon, and his companion, Manny, played by Mark Dacascos, the villain from John Wick 3, and uh, the... The guy from Crying Freeman. Yeah, the presenter of Iron Chef. (laughs) um, Arrived to track and kill a beast that had been killing people throughout the region. Initially helpful, uh, Cassell's character becomes more and more suspect as the killings continue, and Gregor becomes involved with prostitute Sylvia, Monica Monica Bellucci, and the Count's sister Marianne, Emily Duquin. French swashbuckling action werewolf horror is not really a collection of words you hear very often, or ever, really, like I like swashbuckling action adventure films with some heart to them. Like the, I love the Mummy, the Brendan Fraser movie, uh, as I'm sure everyone else does as well. I like Van Helsing with Hugh Jackman, or the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. Kind of falls bottom tier. But Brother of the Wolf, or the Wolf is really trying to cram everything in there, and I think it feels kind of stretched and bloated because of it. Like I checked at one point when it seemed like the movie was going to end, and there was 40 minutes left. Um, like it wants to be a mystery, a costume drama, a horror, a martial arts action movie, and a period swashbuckler all in one, which it manages, in fairness. But it's a hundred and fifty minute run runtime can be a real killer. Vincent Cassell, I I can't say too much about his character without 
spoiling it really point is he looks like he should be an interview with a vampire yeah yeah. <laughs> uh, just because all the nobles in this movie just wear like blood red clothes and he adds a bit of he adds a bit of literal colour and smug colour to the film the basics of his character is his arm was torn off by a lion he was hunting in Africa while he was in the navy and he's pretty bitter and bored because of it on his family's estate and he sees Gregor as a arrival as a way of injecting some excitement into his life even if it winds up being more dangerous than he anticipates and he's always like just kind of smarmy smarmy or smirking in the background until he's eventually kind of pushed closer and further and further into the foreground of the film and you're like oh I'm suspicious of this guy now if I wasn't suspicious of his beady stare and hook nose before (laughs) and I watched the dubbed version um, oh yeah and uh, I'm fairly sure Mark Dacoscos dubs himself I can't tell if Vincent Cassell does because there's a thing about dubbing with foreign language films where all of the dubbing actors whether it's themselves or not maybe it's the mics they use or whatever but they always just seem like softer their voices always seem softer or their accents than they actually are and it's maybe like English or American English speaking actors trying to do a really poor impression of like an accent and they've just kind of buried it I have a terrible ear for that because I was watching The World Is Yours which I'll talk about later Mm. and there's a comedian has a small role in that movie called uh, Philip Katrine who Charlene is a big fan of when she was watching it and to me, he just had an ordinary voice. And she turned to me halfway through the weekend. The movie was, we were watching it in the original French. And she was like, man, he's got such a soft voice. And like, he did not sound soft to me. <laughs> <laughs> you know? So it, it, it's um, it's very, the whole dubbing thing is strange. I'm yeah. always like, just yeah. watch the subtitles. Although sometimes you can't unlock old Westerns and Jalo movies. Yeah, and stuff. that's true. Yeah, especially Jalo movies. I don't know what it is about Jalo movies. I've said this before, but yeah. the, the dubbing to them really kills me. It's very strange. Yeah. Um, Brotherhood of the Wolf is Christoph Gans, isn't it? Yeah. He yeah. seems like a guy who's like big, big, Big style guy, not great story guy. Yeah, because he agree. did Simon Hill, right? Which is oh, okay, very well shot, but mm. like a bit of a mess, kind of story yeah. wise. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, like you, you. I know we say we say a lot, like you, oh, you don't really see thrillers anymore. Like thrillers are t are like ten episode TV shows or Netflix releases or whatever these days. You don't see movies like this anymore at all. Like the action adventure genre is basically dead except for like a PG rated movie like Jungle Cruise and if that's the best we have just kill it already <laughs> if <laughs> Jack sure. Whitehall has to be in an action adventure movie for it to be profitable I'd say kill it and then him <laughs> along with James Corden both of them up against the wall no yeah. okay great <laughs> <laughs> overall how would you give it out of 10 um, I'm, I'm kind of a bit mixed I don't really know if you liked it or not <laughs> I would say a 6 to be six. honest okay. yeah, maybe, well, maybe I was just watching, watching it in the wrong situation or whatever but yeah uh, it had, didn't have Jack Whitehall. Fuck it, seven. Okay, Seven cool. for no Jack Whitehall. So um, for something completely different, I'm going to talk about Irreversible. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> for, for, for a long one. Um, for those not aware... Trigger warning. Trigger warning, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, for those not aware, Irreversible is this uh, very controversial movie that came out in 2002. It was written and directed by Gaspar Noé. It's this sort of thriller, horror, drama hybrid. Um, the movie begins with two men, Marcus, played by Vincent Cassel, and Pierre, played by Albert Dupontel. Entering this nightclub, seeking a man named Letania, the tapeworm. While there, one of them winds up killing a club patron. From there, the film is told in reverse order, with each scene taking place chronologically before the one that precedes it. And also notably, each scene was edited to make it appear as if it was one unbroken shot. So the movie's kind of a collection of just over a dozen really long scenes. Mm. And um, yeah, trigger warning. Um, but basically, we come to learn that Marx and Pierre were trying to avenge the rape and beating of Alex, played by Monica Bellucci, Cassell's wife at the time who they are both in love with. Uh, Cassell's Marcus was dating her. Pierre was her ex, but still had feelings for her. And um, indeed, what you know, what caused a lot of the controversy around Irreversible was that the scene of sexual violence is portrayed in a nine-minute single and broken shot. And uh, yeah, lots been written about the movie. It's one that really divides critics. Some really take against it for its graphic and excessive scenes of violence and some of its other lurid elements. A lot of people love it for the way it experiments with filmmaking and narrative and will defend the violence as being important to the movie's overall themes as opposed to just being gratuitous. I can understand some of the criticisms. It's one of the most disturbing things I've ever seen. It's not something I'd easily recommend to anyone. All that said, I do think it's an incredible piece of work. Just from a filmmaking standpoint, like the first 25 minutes of this movie where Marcus and Pierre enter the nightclub looking for litania between just the constantly swirling camera work this labyrinthine location, blood red lighting, this rumbling, pounding, almost like siren score by uh, Thomas Bangalder from uh, Daft Punk. The performances from Cassell and Dupontel that are just pitched at 11 immediately because he kind of 
see them in like media res. It genuinely feels like the two are descending into hell. It just feels like a nightmare. And even before the scene erupts into vans, no way just manages to provoke such a deep visceral reaction from viewers. And similarly, while I think people are right to question if the movie's depiction of the rape is exploitative, particularly when it seems like so much content these days is based around crimes against women. Yeah. Reading Noe talking about it, I do get his point, and I'm paraphrasing here, but if the focal point of the story is a sexual assault and you don't show it and convey to audiences what disgusting act it is to commit and how terrifying it would be to endure, you're not really giving it the weight it deserves. And I do think Noe captures all that. Also, a recurring line throughout the movie is time destroys all things. And I think by the movie being presented backwards, so you're showing Marx and Pierre's attempt at revenge first, then what happened to Alex, and then this happy ending where we see Alex and Marcus really happy together um, in bed, yeah. you know, which is actually the beginning of the story. I do think Noah is making this existential point that if we were to know what was going to happen in the future, you know, all the bad things potentially around the corner, we would never experience joy. Yeah. And uh, also without spoiling, given the way the plot unfolds, the movie is very anti-vigilantism. So I don't think Irreversible has Vans for the sake of Vans. I, I think it uses it to get at deeper ideas. But, you know, all that aside, whatever, because, like, people have written about Irreversible at length. I feel like no one ever retalks with the performances because, you know, the events of the movie are so shocking and because the filmmaking leaves such a big impression. But, like, Noe, I read online, only had a three-page outline of the story as opposed to a script before the movie was shot. So all of the dialogue is improvised, which is quite a lot to put on actors, especially yeah. when you consider how long the shots are. It's not like Anchorman, yeah, <laughs> where yeah. people can just improv and riff endlessly and you just cut it all together in a way that works and um, I think the three leads who particularly Cassell do manage to build out these complex characters like for the first 40 minutes Cassell's character a bit like Lane is kind of the plot driver because it's just this guy running around frantically you know seeking revenge like where's Latinia and it's fearless in that the way he acts in this early stretch is really ugly like he aggressively accosts a trans woman who's a prostitute and whose pimp was the person who hurt Alex for information and he's really homophobic and he pins her against a wall and threatens her with a knife there's another scene where he he's in a taxi looking for the club where Tania is and the Asian driver of the car doesn't know where the club is and he just starts like hurling like racist insults at the driver and when the driver tries to kick him out like he assaults him and steals the car and it's really horrible to watch. And I think because it's presented first before we see what happened to Alex, it makes Marcus feel like the movie's villain for a while. And I think Noe is inviting people to consider more deeply that that idea that violence begets violence and like, as to quote Lehane, you know, like hate breeds hate. But then as we flash backwards in time, you can see that like Cassell's Marcus, Alex and Pierre were all at a party together that night. And while there, Marcus got drunk and high on cocaine and started acting really crass and laddish. Like he was like, he peed in a kitchen sink because of the queue for the bathroom was too long. He was flirting and kissing other women behind Alex's back. And Cassell's so good at playing someone who like thinks they're being very charismatic and charming was actually being a dick and yeah. just a real sloppy drunk. And I think he perfectly embodies that thing you often see on a night out. Like, Irreversible is the least funny movie of all time, arguably. <laughs> it certainly sounds it. But there is this one bit that's kind of good where um, or funny where someone asks Marcus his name and Vincent Cassell, because he's improvising, clearly makes a mistake and says Vincent <laughs> instead of his <laughs> character's name. And because the party scene is made up of these long, complicated shots that have to be knitted together Birdman style, he quickly covers up the error by saying, ha, just kidding, it's Marcus. <laughs> and yeah, and it saves the scene. And it actually works because it's it's a, like a stupid dro joke a drunk person would make. Yeah, yeah. And if you didn't know that fact, you'd assume it was just a funny in-joke for those who know Vincent Cassell. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like, yeah but, but what's interesting is that Alex left the party alone because Marcus was being so horrible, which led to her assault. And you are kind of left to wonder, is Marcus so relentless in his pursuit of vengeance, less because of what happened to Alex and more because if he hadn't acted out at the party, none of this would have happened? Yeah. yeah. So, like, he's trying to correct his wrong, but is actually being more boorish and ugly in the process. But there's also, there's a line at the party when Alex says to Marcus, like, why are you being like this? You can be so gentle. And the viewer is like thinking like, can he? <laughs> but towards the end of the movie, which is mostly Marcus and Alex in their bed or in their house being romantic and talking about the future, you do see a kinder side to him. Like there's a bit where Alex asks if she became pregnant, what would he think? And he just like takes a long drag of a cigarette and then just erupts into a big grin. I was like, that'd be fun. <laughs> and, you know, Belucci and Cassell obviously have fuego chemistry because they were together in real mm -hmm. life and... Actually, Irreversible itself began as a study of a committed relationship starring the pair before it took on a much darker tone. Mm. But I, I think by showing the nasty side of Marcus before the good, I think Noé and Cassell, who's improvising so much and is bringing so much of the character, are sort of asking, 
do all men have that extreme violence within them? You know, like all it took for Marcus was just one really bad night, yeah. you know? Uh, so it, I think it's a really interesting movie. Apparently, Noé uh, released Irreversible, The Straight Cut recently, which presents the movie's events in linear order. Mm. So it was in the news again recently. I haven't seen it. It sounds like an interesting experiment, although I think it would take away a lot of what I appreciate about the movie. Paddy Thompson wrote a really good review of it on Head Stuff that people should check out. And um, I just, I, I'm just saying, like, I think he really missed a trick by not calling it instead of irreversible, the straight reversible. But yeah, what that's can you just do? me. Yeah. You know. yeah. Do you want to hit uh, Ocean's 12? Sure, yeah. Vincent Cassel plays Baron Francois Toulot, or the Night Fox. A Great French name. nobleman who outs Danny Ocean, played by George Clooney, and his team to Terry Benedict, played by Andy Garcia, whose money they stole three years previously in Ocean's Eleven. Uh, Toulour offers to pay off Ocean's debt if he can steal a Fabergé egg from a heavily guarded museum. Perhaps I should uh, explain to you why I'm tormenting you like this. I'd like that. Mm-hmm. Well, you see, last month I was in Portugal to see my mentor. A mark. Indeed. A very loud... An annoying American businessman was there the same day. He worked for a big insurance company. He's the one who suggested Benedict to you as a potential mark. You know the man? What about him? Well, he said it was the most beautiful job he'd ever seen, and he went on and on about this job, and then he said, <laughs> it showed you were the greatest thief in the world. But the worst part is that Lamarck never corrected him. I told him, Mark, that you can't be better than me. So this film desperately needs an Activia. It feels too bloated and is a slog almost the whole way through. Uh, all the jokes register as bad to average improv, and if it wasn't for their looks, the Brad Pitt, Catherine Zeta-Jones romance would be intolerable, but instead it's just the most boring part of an already very boring movie. Um, Disagree. Hard, but go on. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, all, this, it all just feels like one... Big blue balls, epic wasting of an audience's time, in my opinion. And, like, I'd rather see a Francois Toulour film than anything else to do with these Jokers, frankly. Uh, there's barely enough of Vincent Cassell in it to get a proper read in his character. And, yeah, it's an ensemble cast, but they all get their moments in the sun and are already, and most of them are already established characters, meaning we should be spending more time with Toulour, as, or as much time with uh, Vincent Cassell's character Toulour as we do with Catherine Zeta Jones's character Lahiri. That said, the Bruce Willis scene. Bruce Willis Julia seems Ro- amazing. Julia Roberts impersonating Julia Roberts. Are, that's really good. Matt Damon's amazing. <laughs> the in the show is like Julia, and she's like, ah! <laughs> yeah. This is the bit where Matt Damon's like, I'm with the film. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and Cassell's Capoeira like laser dance scene is really good. Yeah, yeah. That's about it for me, though. That's uh, yeah. I really like it, but I, I like it for all the reasons. I don't like it. I like how vibey it is and really is just seems like beautiful people hanging out in Europe and it's like got a very thin storyline and it's just sort of bits. But I do like all the bits. Yeah, I don't mind the bit where he's like, um, George Clooney is like, you think I'm 50? Yeah. And then he comes up to uh, Don Sheen and is like, do I look 50 to you? He's like, yeah, mate. I love the whole intro of Andy Garcia tracking down everybody. I think that bit's really funny. I like the way he can speak Chinese. He just finds the, the Chinese <laughs> acrobat and speaks to him in Chinese. Yeah. Also, at like basically at the end of the movie, you kind of realize all the stakes of it have been for nothing. And it's very strange. I'm kind of fascinated by movies which seem almost like self-destructive acts. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll put it this way. I watched um, Ocean's Eleven the, uh, the Monday of the week uh, that I watched them both in. And then I watched Ocean's 12 on the Friday. And I think having that little space between them definitely made Ocean's 12 appear worse. Mm. Okay, yeah, I get that. And to be honest, watching both of them, I was just like, I could just watch Logan Lucky again. <laughs> sure. But I, I I don't know, I think Logan Lucky has some Ocean's 12 energy, like all the stuff in the... Yeah, but it's better than that. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> okay, yeah. My issue is I haven't rewatched Ocean's 12 in a couple of years, and I didn't rewatch it because I knew No Cassell isn't in it a lot. Yeah, well, I wish you'd told me that. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know you were going to watch it. As you heard in the intro, this show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest network of independent podcasts. There's plenty of other great shows to check out on the network. Here's a taster of one. This is how it's always been. Double Love is a podcast in which we explore the strange and terrifying world of Sweet Valley High, book by book. Join me, Anna Carey. And me, Karen Moynihan. As we revisit one of the maddest series of books ever written. 
or ghostwritten. If you ever read about the perfect blonde Wakefield twins, Elizabeth and Jessica, with their eyes the colour of the Pacific Ocean, then you might enjoy listening to us absolutely tearing them to shreds. Affectionately, of course. But of course. And even if you didn't, there's still plenty of drama, kidnappings, stolen boyfriends and seemingly mandatory school dances to entertain you. Find us on the Headstuff Podcast Network and wherever you get your podcasts. I Know That Face are also delighted to finally get to tell listeners about Headstuff Plus. Headstuff Plus is the one-stop shop for everything on the Headstuff Podcast Network, Ireland's largest podcast network and the one to which I Know That Face belongs. If you're a fan of I Know That Face or any other shows on the network, become a member of Headstuff Plus and get bonus episodes of Headstuff Shows, other exclusive content, merchandise, early access to live events, and lots more. We here at I Know That Face have already recorded a handful of bonus episodes where myself and Andrew talk about more current news and releases in the world of film and TV. But also in the future, we have plans for more actor-themed series as well, along with releasing episode outtakes, accompanying articles, etc. All for Headstuff Plus subscribers. To sign up to Headstuff Plus, it's just €5 plus fat per month. When you sign up, no matter what show or shows you are supporting, you still get access to everything. All the bonus material for all the podcasts on the network. A lot of great podcasts. Plus, by doing so, you'll be supporting I Know The Face to bring you more top material. For all the details and to sign up, visit headstuffpodcasts.com. And now, back to the show. I can't believe you didn't watch what I'm going to talk about next, Eastern Promises. I've seen it, but I don't really remember him in it that much. He's kind of great in it. Is he like the the henchman? He's the son of the Russian mafia head. Right, yeah. Who Vigo Mortensen's working for. Yeah, that rings a bell. Yeah, yeah, no, this 2007 crime thriller is directed by Dave Cronenberg and begins with a teenager dying during childbirth at a London hospital. I watch a lot of fun movies. Yeah, clearly, (laughs) yeah. It's January. (laughs) Anna, a midwife played by Naomi Watts, discovers a diary uh, belonging to the teenage girl, which is written in Russian, which includes a calling card for a local Russian restaurant trying to find information about the girl's family so she can contact them to you know, give them the baby. She visits the restaurant where the owner, played by Armin Mueller-Stahl, offers to translate the diary for her. However, it turns out the Stahl's character is the head of the Russian mafia <laughs> and his son, Kirill, you know, who's very like uh, drunken and immature, he might have had something to do with the teenage girl. Uh, meanwhile, Nikolai, uh, Kirill's uh, enigmatic driver with ambitions to rise up through the Russian mafia, played by Viggo Mortensen, uh, forms a connection with Anna. Hey, Papa. I've never seen so many old people in one place. Whose party is that? The angel of death? Yeah, you should study it. I know. Get here. Go down into the cell and bring up some brandy. Twelve bottles. Kayan, you hear that? Go down in the cell, get twelve bottles of brandy for Papa. No, no, he stays here. I want to talk business. Business? What business? Papa. What business? His business is my business. Go to the Sela Kirill and take your time. Yeah, this is a very good movie. Probably the most mainstream movie I think Cronenberg has ever made, probably along with The Dead Zone. The script is written by Stephen Knight, who... Created Peaky Blinders, but also is a very accomplished director and screenwriter in his own right. And his career is fascinating in that the last films he wrote were Locked Down, mm-hmm. the Anne Hathaway COVID-19 heist movie, and uh, your favorite movie of last year, Spencer. <laughs> <laughs> and co-created Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Co-created Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. Yeah. Wrote like The Girl on the Spider's Web. I can't work out if he's a journeyman or an auteur, but he kind of chose his hand at everything. There's a middle ground. Like. In, there's a yeah. middle ground. But it feels like with Eastern Promises, Cronenberg took this pulpy, nicely twisty gangster film screenplay with some unique elements like the Russian mob in London and this everyday citizen midwife character unraveling a mystery. But that like Cronenberg accentuated the elements of the screenplay that appealed to him the most. Like the movie is very much about probing notions of identity and like the psychology of being in a criminal gang. Like there's this um, amazing part where Viggo Mortensen's character, Nikolai, is being inducted as a made man in the mafia. And as part of the process, he has to stand in just his jocks in front of a group of mobsters and disown his parents and pledge allegiance only to the gang. And he's like, I have no mother and no father. There is only the code, the Vori Z Zakone code, which I have always followed. And then he says, I am dead already. Now I live in the zone all the time, <laughs> which is almost as cool as like long live the new flesh in yeah, video drum. Yeah. I'm dead already. I live in the zone all the time. Cool. But there's also like a lot of emphasis in the movie on bodies as like, 
tattoos are very important to Russian gangsters. Like what they are and where they are on their body are kind of codes as to where they've been and what their specialities are and what their ethnic and geographical affiliations are. People high up in the gang, for instance, get stars on their knees to indicate that they've never had to kneel to anyone. Mm. Mortensen did interviews about it. He described as basically their history, their calling card is their body. Um, Really fascinating. Violence hits really hard in this movie. Like the film's most famous scene is where uh, two assassins with curved knives attempt to kill Mortensen's character while he's naked in a bathhouse. And like no one is dispatched quickly. Like whereas in most movies, people who are stabbed die immediately. Here trying to kill someone or fending off someone with a knife is depicted as this long, arduous, physical, painful process. And I I do think Cronenberg wants people watching to think like, how can someone do this (laughs) for a living or live in threat of this all the time? And uh, I just think the end result is a movie that um, feels a lot more substantial than other gangster movies. And just on Cassell, like his character too is really interesting. Kirill starts off the movie seemingly filling that archetypal role of the sort of, you know, decadent, reckless, unpredictable gangster who becomes a problem and needs to be taken out. And he acts as if like, because he's the son of um, the head boss, he can do what he wants and no one can touch him. But also like his father doesn't respect him at all. And he desperately craves praise from his dad. Yeah. Like, all that is kind of well-worn territory. And when Naomi Watts' character starts wondering if Kirill was involved with what happened to the pregnant girl, it's not that surprising. However, you come to learn that Cassell's character is gay, something which is depicted as a big no-no in the, the Russian Mafia. His dad uses a lot of homophobic language in the movie, as does Cassell's Kirill himself, which makes him this kind of pathetic, self-hating character. And, like, he's nearly always drunk in the movie, and it's almost as if he's, like, using alcohol to numb the pain of having to repress that part of himself. And... What's fascinating about Cassell's performance is that even before that's revealed more explicitly, because you find out that, like, early on, Kirill has a Chechen gangster killed, and we later learn it was because that he was telling other people that he was gay. Right, yeah. Yeah, but Cassell depicts Kirill as having um, an unspoken attraction to Viggo Mortensen's uh, character. Early on, <laughs> He's so hot. <laughs> um, early on, Viggo is told to dispose of the body, and as he's about to do his thing, you know, remove the teeth, cut off the fingers, he says to Cassell's career, like, you might want to leave the room. And as he goes, Kirill casually slaps Viggo's butt. <laughs> and it's before you've had any, like, indication that he might be gay, and you're just like, huh, okay. All right. Um, and then in another scene, they come into his dad's restaurant drunk after it's closed, and Viggo Mortensen's character, Nikolai, sits down and Cassell just falls to the floor and curls up by Vigo's feet and his dad walks in and is mortified and just starts kicking Cassell. <laughs> He's like, <laughs> Papa, what did I do? <laughs> um, there's also another bit where a really threatening Kirill forces Vigo's character to have sex with a prostitute in front of him to prove he's not gay and that he can be in the gang. Mm, yeah. And Vigo's like, you're a psycho. And Cassell laughs. And But the way like Kirill stares intensely at Vigo as he has sex makes it feel like it was more of a thing for him. Yeah, yeah. And I, like, remember, I remember that scene. Yeah, he actually says at the end, like, you did it very nice. And Vigo's out of breath is like, thank you, brother. <laughs> um, very strange, very funny. Um, anyway, it's revealed kind of halfway through the movie that it, w- it wasn't Kirill who impregnated the teenage girl, but it was his father who seemed kind of like a nice, ordinary old man at the beginning of the movie, but is like it's a really good banality of evil performance by yeah. Armin Mueller style. And... Vico's character basically tries to use the diary and Cassell's growing resentment for his father against the dad to try and remove him from the gang and further his place in it. Won't spoil how it wraps up. It's really great. <laughs> but uh, I'm just impressed that Cassell, on top of doing a pretty good Russian accent, can manage to be simultaneously like dangerous and threatening, yet weak and childlike. And also believable, but also slightly heightened and arch in the scenes he has with Viggo Mortensen's character. Like, It's just, the character is a lot more interesting than you might expect at first. And that is then given extra life by some of the weird choices that Cassell is making yeah. performance-wise. But um, yeah, absolutely, 100% recommend. Love Eastern Promises. Yeah. I would recommend it as well, just from what I remember, which is very little, but yeah, yeah. yeah. Go in prepared. A lot of knives. A lot of, lot of yeah. knives. You know in a movie where like someone gets stabbed and they try to they try to catch the knife and it goes through their palm? Yeah, And that's yeah. maybe the worst thing you'll see done with a knife in that movie. Well, I, I remember um, not a, not in a, not in like Eastern Promises, but in any movie that yeah, yeah, for movie, sure, yeah. yeah. Eastern Promises is ten times worse than any of those catch the knife kind of moments. <laughs> catch it in your eyeball yeah, and spasm out. Yeah. Catch it in your spleen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then ten more times before you die. But it's it's like very medical. I feel like violence in gangster movies is often shot in a way where it's like that looks cool, whereas in this one it's like this is horrifying. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Do you uh, want to talk Black yeah, Swan? I'll talk Black Swan. Yeah, just add it to Prime Video. 
Vincent Cassell plays Thomas Leroy, the artistic director of a New York ballet company who casts the technically skillful but almost passionless Nina Sayers, played by Natalie Portman in an Oscar-winning role, as the dual lead in Swan Lake. She impresses Thomas with her training, even as his methods along with outside factors and her fellow dancer Lily, played by Mila Kunis, drive her towards madness. Lily told me that she saw you crying. That you were very upset and uh, that I should take it easy on you. I didn't tell her that. Maybe you'd need a little break, like a day or two. To no? Or maybe a month. What do you think? She shouldn't have said anything. No, you shouldn't be whining in the first place. I didn't. You could be brilliant, but you're a coward. Sorry. Now stop saying that. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Stop being so fucking weak. Again. So Thomas is a man more than willing to use his powerful position to seduce, use and manipulate young women. And in order to draw a better performance out of Nina, he starts playing psychological games with her. He shows her through his actions what it means to seduce and also pits her against her fellow dancers like the bit where he's, he's like gives her a private lesson and uh, starts to, you know, um, starts to kiss her and uh, grope her. And then she gets into it and then he like cuts it off like that. And he's like, that was me seducing you. It should be the other way around and stalks off. Great, great little scene if, you know, very uncomfortable and you realise what he's trying to do. Mm. And, but he's also, he's also a man who, like, cares deeply for his company, which is almost broke. Uh, he cares about his dancers and the work that they do, if not about, if not the people that the dancers are, to the extent that he'll break personal, professional and ethical boundaries to kind of push these performers to the place they need to be. He's got some great quotes as he as the relationship with Nina kind of develops, he's like he takes her home after this like gala that uh, that in, is needed for investors, and he introduces her around, and then he takes her home, and he's like, they sit down on the couch, and he's like, do you enjoy making love? And she's like, what? And choking on her shampoo, he's like, sex? Do you enjoy it? Uh, and um, and then he's talking to another dancer as he gets more and more kind of like he starts to push. Um, Nina in the direction kind of her performance needs to go in order to embody the more kind of virginal, innocent uh, white swan or the more seductive and passionate black swan. And he's talking to her um, fellow principal dancer and he's like, Damien, be honest with me. Would you fuck this girl? No, of course not. No one would. Or um, just when he's like, um, it's kind of like the the turning point for Nina. She decides to like really like kind of go for it regardless of what kind of damage it does to her mental health and he just screams and he's like stop being so fucking weak and it it all really hits in his like French accent which I do a poor impression of I will admit but um, I do a poor impression of any French accent Charlene will attest to that she's had to listen to countless hours of it over the Isabelle Huppert and Jessica (laughs) episodes along with many more but it was a real game changer of her role for Natalie Portman that kind of really shattered the image of her as like the innocent fragile Hollywood ingenue and gave her like basically carte blanche after twenty after the twenty twenty awards season to really shape her career and make you know, let her secure roles like Jackie or Annihilation and or Vox Lux. Jane Foster in the Thor films. <laughs> Jane Foster Jane Foster in the Thor films, yeah. Listen, yeah. we all have to pay the bills. For sure. No, no, she's roof, roof over our heads. She's an incredible actress and Black Swan is um amazing mm-hmm. movie. We talk about The World Is Yours. I love this movie. <laughs> so this is a uh, crime comedy which centers on a young man named Francois, played mm. by Kareem Leclou. Um He's this Leclou. sweet guy with this overbearing mother, played by hilarious Isabelle um, Ajani. Isabelle Ajani. The other Isabelle. Um, who, and his mother is also a con artist and thief. And you know, growing up with her, he's fallen into the criminal scene in the area, becoming a small-time drug dealer for this erratic kingpin named Poutine. And... <laughs> But however, Francois has this nice dream of leaving the game to set up an ice pop business and live an ordinary life. And in order to acquire enough money to do that, he takes part in one last big drug deal in Spain involving British gangsters. However, it all goes wrong and Francois ends up becoming embroiled in a kidnapping plot. A lot of critics have compared this to Guy Ritchie capers like Snatch or Rock and Roll or The Gentleman recently in that like there are stakes. People could get killed, but there's a lot of jokes and it doesn't really take itself too seriously. It features a lot of wacky characters. I would actually say it's better than many of those movies because, like, it has characters you really empathize with. You know, you really like Francois. 
And the jokes are a little more highbrow and satirical. Like, there's none of the kind of crudeness that you can get in something like The Gentleman, which had some gags that left a sour taste in my mouth, yeah, even if I enjoyed yeah. the overall movie. And even, like, the, the title of The World is Yours is very playful because, like, that's a slogan on signs that appear in both versions of Scarface. It actually shows up on a wall in Lahaine, yeah. too, where Saeed scribbles out. He writes, yeah. yeah, The World is Ours, which is actually a lovely little sentiment. Yeah. But in The World is Yours, there's a bit where these two gung-ho young gangsters who accompany Francois to help with the deal, who are both called Mohammed, um, are <laughs> criticizing Francois's handling of the drug deal. And he's like, we're not in Scarface. <laughs> yeah, another thing about uh, The World is Yours that's cool is that it's directed by Romain Gavras, who made his name directing music videos for MIA and Kanye West and Jay-Z and Justice. And the movie is just really gorgeous to look at and style it. <laughs> Vincent Cassell, he's, it's probably the most character actor role I've seen him play in a French movie. He plays Henry, um, this ex-con, who is this strange kind of pathetic father figure to Francois as he used to date Francois's mother and still has a massive crush on her. <laughs> and because of that connection, he joins Francois in Spain on this drug deal and he's hysterical. Like, it actually took me a moment to realize it was him as he has this goatee and slit uh, back hair. His energy is a lot different here and that he's playing a character who is not very intelligent. So he's more still, but not in an intense way, more in there's a not much going on upstairs kind of yeah. way, like a bit sleepy. <laughs> um, there's two things this performance reminded me of do you remember Father Purcell and Father Ted you know he's meant to be like the most boring priest in the world and he's in the raffle episode where he's like oh is he the one they have the they... finest collection of boilers and I include Canada in that what's your favourite <laughs> humming noise <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that fella yeah. he's a bit like that in that he's constantly monologuing nonsense in this kind of low mumbly voice but no one ever listens to him yeah. and like everyone's <laughs> always trying to kind of get away from him yeah. there's a part where I think Francois is um, he's searching for money his mom stole from him in her house and Henry is just rattling off in the background like cash as we know it is disappearing 80% of transactions nowadays are no longer bills <laughs> just zeros and ones on computers we should ban paper what is paper paper is trees trees are life life is us even roadmaps got replaced by GPS no more rolling papers e-cigarettes <laughs> Francois just like kind of catches his eye and leaves the room as he's talking because that just continues on like paper's done wallpaper is a critic now <laughs> and um, the best recurring gag in the movie goes to Cassell's character in that <laughs> Mohammed's exposed Cassell's Henry to a conspiracy theory YouTube video about how the Illuminati controls the world and then just throughout the movie anytime there's a bit of downtime it just cuts to Henry going just further down a conspiracy theory wormhole on his phone looking at videos about the importance of triangles and other <laughs> crazy shit and there's a bit where Francois tells him like to turn off those f fucking videos and Cassell replies like even if it's muddled it makes sense Apple Microsoft Nestle Jay-Z Beyonce everything connects <laughs> <laughs> the gag pays off in a great way because the whole movie builds to this drug heist on a boat and it turns out all the packages containing the drugs have a triangle sign on them <laughs> and when Henry sees them it's like George Clooney in Burn After Reading when he thinks everyone in the park is a spy yeah. he's just noticing all the triangles around him <laughs> and one of the Mohammeds has like the Adidas logo on his shirt he's like Ooh! <laughs> it's really good um, yeah a very good movie. <laughs> Do you want to talk underwater? Yeah, sure. We have about 30 minutes till meltdown. Okay, guys, listen. The escape pods are gone and the sub is out of order. And we're not getting any more radio signals. And the structure of the Kepler's is totally unsound. Captain, there better be a good punchline because the setup is... So weak. Weak. We go for the Roebuck. The Roebuck? It's a mile down and a mile that way. What are you talking about? Yeah. How would we even get that? We walk. We what? Walk. So we just go in the pitch black and we walk without knowing where we're going with insufficient oxygen? That's the plan? That's the plan. Everybody down with that? Nora, you okay with that? The suits can't be down there that long, you know that. Not everyone here is an experienced diver and... Yeah, we never know. I I'm not trying to be... Can you just admit we might die doing that? Yeah. But can you admit that we might live doing this? So Underwater is a film that was buried, I think, in the Disney Fox merger for three years. It was filmed in 2017. didn't come out until January 2020. And I saw it in the cinema. I think I was one of uh, four people in that screen. Eight worldwide, I think. That's, uh, <laughs> that's Our favourite genre is movies that were buried in the Fox Disney, Disney merger. merger. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I wouldn't count this as a favourite movie, but I think it is pretty, uh, still pretty good as in, like an underwater alien riff. Yeah. And pr probably wasn't helped by T.J. Miller's performance about a year after he stopped appearing in films due to sexual misconduct and bomb threat allegations. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I don't think Underwater is like a spectacular movie. It's like alien 
but underwater. It's uh, but I'm I'm pretty obsessed with places like Mount Everest, the bottom of the ocean, or the depths of space. Places that were never meant for human habita- habitation, and the implication of the unknown and the nasty things we might find out there. And so with that kind of obsession on my belt, along with it being uh, Kristen Stewart's first mainstream performance in roughly five years, add Cassell to that picture and it's enough to get my ass in a cinema seat. So, Vincent Cassell plays Captain Lucian, the captain of an engineering crew based in Kepler 822, a research and drilling station deep in the Mariana Trench, the deepest known point in the ocean. When an earthquake hits the trench, Captain Lucian and engineer Nora Price, played by Kristen Stewart, lead several others, including T.J. Miller, to another station a mile across the ocean floor, fighting previously unknown creatures all the way. So, you don't choose to work on the ocean floor unless you're either obsessed with the ocean, a bit weird, or you're running from something. And most of the crew of Kepler-822, well, they're not weird because the movie doesn't give them that kind of characterization. It doesn't give anyone any characterization, really. Most of the crew of Kepler-822 seem to be running from something, or at least Nora and Lucian do, seeing as they're the only ones given any kind of characterization. And even there, it's thin on the ground. And as I said, it's a lot like Alien, only without the snappy dialogue and initial inter-crew conflicts. Like, you know, no one's arguing about their shares or um, why they were just woken up. And we kind of know through implication that Nora had a relationship go sour or is grieving and that Lucian is hiding from his own family troubles or sorrows at the bottom of the ocean. I don't know, it's like... Obviously, Kristen Stewart's the lead in this, and uh, Vincent Cassell is just kind of the... He's the Dallas of um, Underwater, and... Uh, the the character played by Tom Skerritt, not the TV show. Absolutely, <laughs> yes. Yeah. And we all know what happened to Dallas and Aliens, and you know we all know what happened to most of the characters in Alien, other than the female lead. Um, but I think Underwater is, watching, is worth watching if you're looking for like a tight 90 minute with some really good special effects and a fucking bonkers ending. Like it go, it just doesn't like. Don't, don't look up uh, the plot on Wikipedia or IMDb, and just, just know you're in, you're in for a real, uh, a good ten seconds of insane special effects. Like that's where they're going. They really, they're in, they went with this. Uh, so yeah, yeah. I, I would recommend it just for that. And I'm... if anyone's interested in like, you know, places hu- humans should not be. Uh, that's that's uh, it's a movie you should watch. Yeah, I'm very excited to see it. I'm kind of been waiting for it to hit a streaming service, and has it? I don't think so. Like I've never checked for it. I'll be honest, because I, I think I, it's I, on Disney Plus. Maybe, but um, underwater. I think it's a spoiler to kind of say. But what what has made me curious about it is I think the thing that you're mentioning towards yeah, the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, cool. Yeah, just just why would they do that? You know? Yeah, yeah, for <laughs> sure. Yeah. Any other thoughts on about Vincent Cassell? I'm actually kind of looking forward to him as Julius Caesar in Asterix and Obelix. I probably won't, I'll probably never see it, but it's a. I think it's a fun idea. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's like perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. he looks very Roman. Mm. Yeah. Uh, I um. They've always said they're going to do an Eastern Promises sequel, and it's never happened. And watching it, I'm. I think don't do it as a movie. Do it as an eight-part series on like Netflix mm. or whatever. Get maybe get Cronenberg back. If not, Stephen Knight. Yeah. He he'll whack whack it out in four hours. <laughs> do it, v- Vigo and Cassell, head of the Russian mob in London. I would totally watch that tomorrow. Yeah. Hope they do it. Yeah, me too. Yeah, I'd have to rewatch Eastern Promises first, and then I'd go to the series. But yeah, yeah, yeah for agree. sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, that's everything I have. Um, rate and review and subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. Email I know that facepod at gmail dot com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks to Shine Fernandez for editing and running our socials. Um, if you love the show, please consider donating five euro a month to us through Headstuff Plus, where you can find special exclusive episodes, um, multiple now, including um, our Lean Legend series on Brad Pitt, Denzel Washington, Jodie Foster, all yeah, A-listers. Foster. More to come. In more the to new come. Year. Andrew, where can people find more of your work? You can find me at the Headstuff Gaming section, where we talk about what we play, why we play, and how we play it. And um, you can also check me out at Joe.e, where I write about news and the odd entertainment story. See you later, Cinefoss. Bye bye. This show is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network, a hub for the creative and the curious. Shows are produced in association with Headstuff and the Podcast Studios Dublin. Find out more or become a member at headstuffpodcasts.com.